So, um, Dr. O'Day, as, as fellowship director for the Neonatology Perinatal, Perinatal Medicine Fellowship, is going to introduce our speaker, who is actually no um, um, uh, no stranger to this podium, having done this three years ago and actually done it for uh, M&M rounds, et cetera. But we will definitely give her an official introduction, Carolyn. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Michelle Tyler. Um, the brief story is uh, she graduated from UCSD in San Diego for both her undergrad and medical school and then came to us in the Upper Valley, has been here as a resident, chief resident. She's completed both the Leadership and Preventive Medicine program and received her MPH last spring. Code and is Just for you. Michelle's wearing purple on purpose. She knew this was going to happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so Michelle will be graduating from our neonatology fellowship program uh, at the end of June, officially. Um, and as part of Neonatology Fellowship, for those who uh, may not know, all of our fellows are required to complete a scholarly project um, that gets sent into the Board of uh, Pediatrics. And so Michelle's work is tied in with her work uh, from LPMR on an improvement project that I know um, we have really been impacted by in the unit. And we're happy to have her share um, both that project and some uh, interesting information about bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Uh, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce Michelle, who's really been a fantastic fellow for us over the last four years. Good morning. Can everybody hear me? Okay. So thank you so much for that kind introduction. So I will be talking. Oh, that sounds. A little. Okay. okay. So I'll be talking today about bronchopulmonary dysplasia, also known as chronic lung disease. So those terms are used interchangeably. Um, and then tied into my project uh, in the NICU and through my leadership preventive medicine, res medicine residency. I have nothing to disclose. My objectives for the today are to describe bronchopulmonary dysplasia, uh, explain the health consequences of BPD, and then summarize my quality improvement project. <clears throat> In order to do that, I plan to review lung development. We're going to talk about neonatology histories and mysteries, uh, talk about some BPD definitions and some controversies with that, and then dive into my improve the improvement work. All right, so first, the normal lung development. So I know it's early, so don't be scared. This will be, this will be easy. Um, so it starts with the embryonic phase, and this is from weeks four to seven, where the lung buds off of the foregut, and the trachea develops, and it branches into the left and right main stem bronchi. It proceeds onto the pseudoglandular phase from seven to 16 weeks where there's further branching of the tree, ultimately ending with the terminal bronchioles. Then in the canulicular phase from weeks 16 to 24, those terminal bronchioles will divide and, into, and become to the respiratory bronchioles. And in the saccular phase from weeks 24 to 36, this is when the respiratory bronchioles will divide and develop into terminal sacs, which are ultimately would become the alveoli. And this is where surfactant production begins. 
And it ends with the alveolar phase starting at about weeks, uh, week 36, sometimes earlier, um, where those terminal sacs will divide significantly um, and undergo uh, secondary septation to become the alveoli that we know. And this lasts for about, um, for the next few years after birth. All right, so that was pretty quick and painless. So now let's talk about um, some history um, of the field of neonatology. Because if you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. So it started in the late 1800s to early 1900s, and this is really when the first incubators were being used um, in the field. Uh, so it was actually a physician that came over from um, abroad that studied under obstetricians and developed an interest in premature babies and small babies. And he had this idea of using incubators for these babies, and not only to use them, but to show them off to people at things like the World's Fair um, and Coney Island, um, and actually had live babies in these um, for people, for the public to come and see. And in 1946, Dr. Clement Smith published his book, The Physiology of the Newborn Infant, um, and this, along with other early works, really set a, um, helped create a strong foundation for newborn science. In 1953, Dr. Apgar published her paper um, where she was wanting to develop a clear and simple grading of newborns, um, a grading that we still use today. And in 1960, the term neonatology was actually coined. Um, and this was by Dr. Schaefer in the introduction to his book, The Diseases of the Newborn. And in 1963, the field of neonatology really made front page news with the birth of John F. Kennedy's son, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, who was actually born early at 34 weeks um, at 2,100 grams. He suffered from and ultimately died from respiratory distress syndrome. So this led to really an increased public awareness of the field of neonatology and the consequences of prematurity, and ultimately would lead to increased funding for pediatric research. And in 1960s was when the first um, American NICU was opened down at Yale. Uh, so there had been other units that had cared for premature babies, but this was really the first a uh, specialized intensive care unit for premature and newborn and young infants. But as highlighted by the president's baby, uh, in, 19, in the 1960s, premature infants were still dying from respiratory distress syndrome, or also known as Highland Membrane Disease. And it's estimated that about 50 to 60% of babies who suffered from RDS would ultimately die of the disease. And the average surviving gestational age for a premature infant was only 34 weeks. And even before the Kennedy baby and before the field of neonatology was defined, doctors had been working on how to better treat these babies with RDS. So in 1950, Dr. Bloxham, who was a pediatrician, described um, the first uh, description of using positive pressure ventilation on a newborn infant. And this was his device that he um, made. It was called the Bloxham Airlock. Um, and the infant's entire body was placed into the cylindrical chamber and sealed shut and then infused with humidified oxygen 
um, and actually had pressures that were alternating to mimic the contractions of the uterus as he thought, he thought that that would be helpful. And though it's a little scary looking now, uh, and its debate or its uh, medical success was, is actually debated, it did spark um, the interest in using positive pressure ventilation for these babies. And other devices were suggested, um, some with varying success. But it was ultimately in 1964 that the first successful ventilation of a pre premature infant with highland membrane disease, or RDS, was described. And this started the routine use of uh, ventilators for pediatric um, diseases. And this was with the bird mark eight, here, pictured here on the left, and then later the baby bird um, there on the right. And these ventilators uh, started this because they were the first low-cost, mass-produced respirators for pediatrics. And they're so prevalent that, in fact, we, you can still find one of these here at Dartmouth um, in a closet somewhere. You can just ask your helpful RT, might be able to show you where it is. So now physicians were keeping these babies alive, um, but another problem crept up. So in 1967, Dr. Northway, who was a pediatric radiologist over at Stanford, he noticed that he was seeing this new x-ray pattern um, on babies after their RDS um, had resolved. So he described 32 patients with severe RDS, and he compared them to radiologic and pathologic controls. And what he found, he described in four stages. So the first stage um, is the acute respiratory distress syndrome. The x-ray pattern showed the typical sort of very granular, hazy um, fields, lung fields that we're used to seeing today, along with the air bronchograms. Um, and then on pathology, there were the highland membrane highland membranes, which are basically protein and dead cells um, sort of clogging up the alveoli. So this was, this was not new. But he described through stage four, which was beyond a month of age, where their chest x-rays had really irregular densities, um, patchy throughout the lungs. And on histology, there was significant um, fibrosis and scarring that was seen. There was also emphysematous areas, um, and hypertrophied smooth muscle around the bronchioles. And this he called bronchopulmonary dysplasia, or BPD. And he described this really as the appearance of a new chronic pulmonary syndrome that's associated with the use of intermittent positive pressure respirators and high oxygen. So he astutely pointed out that it was this positive pressure in conjunction with this high oxygen that um, was really damaging the lungs. And he and others would ultimately show with animal models that that was the case with positive pressure and high oxygen could actually um, disrupt the lung growth and development. So from then on, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, or BPD, was characterized as this alveolar destruction, severe fibrosis, vascular changes, and really a heterogeneous disease. And there were long-term consequences for these babies. Um, so from a respiratory standpoint, they had increased use of the respiratory medications. They had poor lung catch-up growth. They had worse spirometry values. And more concerning from a neurodevelopmental standpoint, uh, these babies um, 
tended to have worse outcomes. So of the initial survivors that Northway described, when he followed them out from anywhere between 6 and 40 months, he found that 46% of them had some sort of neurodevelopmental abnormality. And then later, when researchers would follow babies until two years of age, they found they were more likely to have neurodevelopmental impairment, um, even compared to other premature babies of similar gestational age, without BPD. Okay. So before we leave this short historical review of neonatology and BPD, um, it's definitely worth mentioning a couple of key advances in the field. Uh, and these... Two next two things could be whole talks in and of themselves. So I'm going to try to um, summarize the highlights of them. So first is antenatal steroids. So in 1969, um, Dr. Liggins was actually looking at the association between steroids and premature birth. And he found that premature lambs that had been exposed to steroids, they had a partial expansion of their lungs. And this was huge at the time. So he went on to later do a randomized control trial of over 200 mothers, randomizing them to either betamethasone or placebo, and he found that their babies um, had decreased respiratory distress syndrome and less early, early neonatal death. Unfortunately, it wasn't until 1990, after multiple randomized control trials were done, that a meta-analysis was published that showed that there was a 50% reduction in respiratory distress syndrome um, in, if mothers received antenatal steroids, and there was also reduced brain injury, enterocolitis, and death. So after this was published, the field of obstetrics embraced this, at, started to embrace this as standard of care um, for, for mothers who were at risk of delivering prematurely. So the next big, huge topic um, is surfactant. And in, uh, in the 50s and 60s, people were trying to understand what was the cause of respiratory, respiratory distress syndrome or the highland membrane disease they were seeing. And they knew that surface tension was a, was a major part in aerating the lungs. And in 1959, Avery published her seminal paper um, where she showed that infants who died of respiratory distress syndrome had higher surface tension than those who didn't have the disease. And she postulated that without this surface active material, or surfactant, uh, that the air spaces would be unstable and then collapse. In 1980 was the first um, published report of successful use of an artificial surfactant for babies with uh, respiratory distress syndrome or highland membrane disease. And in 1990, uh, that surfactant, or as a version of, was, was FDA approved and became standard of care in the field to use surfactant uh, for premature babies with RDS. Okay, so with these and other, lots of other advances in the field, including nursing advancements and nutritional advancements, uh, we went from having the average gesta surviving gestational age in the 60s at 34 weeks to the 1990s where, the, where babies born at 26, 27, 28 weeks were commonly surviving. So because these babies are born at a different time point in their lung development, it's only natural to assume that these babies were, would develop a different kind of disease, a different kind of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. 
So we had that old BPD, so what we've talked about so far, the alveolar destruction, the severe fibrosis, the vascular changes, really heterogeneous disease. And now this new BPD that physicians were seeing, so more of reduced alveoli, they had less, less inflammation, less, less of the vascular changes, but more of a diffuse picture across their lungs. And when we look histologically, so normal over here on the left, you can see that there's lots of similarly sized alveoli with lots of these septations increasing the surface area for gas exchange. Um, compared to the old BPD, which has lots of fibrosis and scarring. Um, and then the new BPD that, that people were seeing, which really had larger alveoli with less septation. So this was really termed um, an arrest of lung development. So now we have this old BPD, we have this new BPD, and there was difficulty, as you can imagine, in the field in sort of defining what this was and which babies had it. In 1967, that was the first definition from Northway that we talked about. So there was the radiologic and pathologic findings and oxygen requirement at 28 days or a month of life. And in 1979, Thule um, noted that there was less pathologic specimens to diagnose it. So babies weren't dying so much of it, so they didn't have those, those specimens to diagnose it. So he suggested doing oxygen requirement at 30 days or a month of life um, and any radiologic abnormality on chest X-ray. And this is really more of a functional definition for clinicians to use. And in 1988... Shannon noticed um, appropriately also that babies were being born earlier and surviving. Um, so just requiring oxygen at a month of age didn't necessarily make sense as the definition anymore. Uh, so he actually looked at a variety of postmenstrual ages, so anywhere between, you know, in the late 30s into the 40s, if they were requiring oxygen at that point in time. And found that at 36 weeks, if babies were requiring oxygen at 36 weeks postmenstrual age, that gave the best prediction of their ultimate pulmonary outcome. And in 1999, the NIH got involved. They developed a subcommittee um, to further define the uh, definition of BPD. And they categorized it into less than 32 weeks born or greater than 32 weeks, and then subcategorized into mild, moderate, or severe BPD. And this was based on the previous definitions of oxygen at 28 days or oxygen requirement at 36 weeks. And this subcategorization was helpful for clinicians to, to talk about the clinical status, if a baby had mild or moderate BPD. But as with the other definitions, it was still... Um, it was still at risk to have some variation in it because things like the oxygen use in a unit, um, the oxygen delivery device, the oxygen saturation targeting could all affect whether the baby was on oxygen or not at, that, at particular points in time. So in 2003, uh, Michelle Walsh wanted to standardize the definition of BPD. So she developed um, an oxygen reduction weaning um, test to, to be done at 36 weeks 
um, that would take away that possibility of variability. Um, and this was really more of a physiologic definition of BPD. So really to find out, did the babies need oxygen or not if they followed the standardized uh, oxygen reduction test? Unfortunately, with all of these, as you can imagine, there's still some controversy and some confusion in the field as to what defines BPD. The most commonly used today is the oxygen at 36 weeks mark. Um, but that, like I said, there's still some controversy. So where are we at today for this disease? So unfortunately, it's still the most common morbidity for premature infants. And data from the NICHD, Neonatal Research Network, or the NRN, of babies born less than 29 weeks shows that BPD is increasing. And actually, for all eight centers in the NRN, uh, BPD rates were increasing for, um, for all gestational age categorizations except for 28 weeks. So, so 27, 26, all of those babies are having increased um, rates of BPD. And more up-to-date data shows that there's still significant sequelae for these babies as they grow. So compared to controls with similar gestational age but without BPD, they have, at nine years of age, they're more likely to report respiratory symptoms. And they're also more likely to have significantly lower pulmonary function tests. And from a neurodevelopmental standpoint, BPD is a, a significant risk factor for neurodevelopmental impairment at 18 to 22 weeks. And it increases the risk of death at 18 months. And when these infants are evaluated at four years of age, the increased risk persists. Um, even after controlling for things like gestational age, their birth year, their sex, and other demographic information. Okay. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the improvement work. So for research in this field, um, science and data, um, sorry, uh, science and clinical research is obviously important in the field and how we, what we can do for these babies and how we can advance. And for things like that, we have the, neon, the NICHD Neonatal Research Network. But also critical in, uh, in the field is improvement work. And for that, we have the Vermont-Oxford Network. So the Vermont-Oxford Network, or VON, uh, is an international collaborative um, of, that's focused on quality improvement in NICUs. And it's over 1,000 NICUs that voluntarily submit data on their very low birth weight infants, which is less than 1,500 grams. And they can then track their outcomes and compare themselves to the mean um, and try to improve their outcomes. And we've been a part of this um, since the very early days. Um, so it, uh, we take advantage of it as much as we can. And there's been a lot of previous work done in our unit to try to decrease our respiratory morbidities. Um, and this was led by Dr. Suresh as well as Dr. Singh. Um, and the main focus of a lot of this work has been to try to reduce uh, ventilator days or reduce the amount of mechanical ventilation that these babies are exposed to. So things like stabilization on CPAP with the Golden Hour Project, early extubation guidelines, uh, the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, and then things like Ensure, where you intubate, give them the surfactant, and extubate quickly. So 
all these things here and nationally, again, are sort of focused on decreasing that early exposure to mechanical ventilation. But when we look at our Vaughn data for BPD and chronic lung disease, uh, when, when I started my new NHLG fellowship along with LPMAR in 2014, we can see that we are variable. Um, we tended to be above the mean, although there had been some successes in, in getting that lower. Um, but there was, there was still room for improvement on that. And even more striking was our discharge home on oxygen. So you can see from this that we were a significant outlier and had been for some time. And this is really a marker of the most severe chronic lung disease. And when we thought about this and we looked at this, we didn't feel that our babies were sicker. We didn't feel like that that was the reason that we were having this. Um, because in a lot of other ways, compared to the Vermont-Oxford mean, our babies were very similar. Um, so we thought that there must, there must be something else that we're doing as our unit that might lead to this. And maybe it has to do with the way we're weaning, um, but we wanted to investigate this further. So as I started my LPM, um, and was looking for a project uh, that, to, that would be interesting and useful, this was an area that stuck out for, um, that could be improved upon. <coughs> and when, we, when I talked with families, uh, it became more impactful. So I talked with families that were discharged home with a baby um, requiring oxygen, and they felt like they looked like a hospital in their bedroom. For a while, they felt confined to their room. And they tried to avoid going out to, and avoid the weird looks that they received. And it was really a difficult transition from NICU to home. So we formed our multidisciplinary team. We utilized uh, the race committee, which was already um, a committee in the intensive care nursery that was focused on respiratory outcomes and critical events. Um, and with my help, with help from my mentor, Dr. Singh, um, and my LPMR coach, Dr. Zabelik, uh, we determined some aims and what we wanted to do. So globally, we wanted to improve the quality of care of early birth weight infants and reduce the burden of home oxygen for families. But specifically, we wanted to decrease the rate of our very low birth weight infants discharge home on oxygen from our unit by half in two years. So to better understand our problem, we did a process map um, to try to understand what was going on and how these babies ended up going home on oxygen. So it starts with a very low birth weight baby is born. So the, again, that's less than 1,500 grams at birth. They may or may not receive surfactant and, become, and get intubated, but ultimately all of them would make it to continuous positive pressure at some point in time, so CPAP. And then after some amount of time, if they were still requiring oxygen, they might be switched to something like high flow nasal cannula. And then after another amount of time, if they were still requiring oxygen, they might be switched to low flow nasal cannula. And then if they were otherwise ready to go home, they were meeting all their other discharge criteria. If they were still requiring oxygen, they would go home on oxygen. Uh, but, and if not, then they would be off of oxygen. And when I talked with the nursing staff and respiratory staff, it was clear that this process was pretty variable um, in who went to high flow, who went to low flow, at what point in time. 
and they noticed that weaning in this stage was all over the place. Everybody had their own way of doing it, and sometimes we were just winging it, and which is always what you want to hear in medicine. <laughs> uh, and in, um, in looking at this also, we noticed that these parts in the blue really hadn't been addressed by the previous improvement project. So all the previous improvement projects had focused up in here about the intubation and mechanical ventilation and CPAP, but nothing had so far focused on this, this part of the care of the infant. And when we looked at the factors that would ultimately lead to a baby going home on oxygen, there were certainly some things that were out of our control. So things like if the mom received the antenatal steroids or what her prenatal care was, some family factors. But there was definitely some things that were, had to do with variation in our practices. So the different approaches from the staff on how aggressive to wean, um, and then their desire to wean, different approaches from providers on sort of when to trial them off, when they were ready to go home, a lack of continuity between the two, and then no clear um, set guideline or best practice on when to wean and how to wean. And when we look at the data behind this, there is evidence for standardization in the field. Um, so one study showed that standardizing a nasal cannula order set and a weaning plan could actually decrease the rate of babies going home on oxygen. And then going back to the physiologic definition of BPD and Michelle Walsh's work, standardized weaning trials, or those oxygen reduction tests, Show, were shown to reduce the variation in the chronic lung disease across centers and also reduce the variation in, within a center. So we determined our measures of what we wanted to follow during this um, time course. We determined um, our discharge home and oxygen was, was going to be our sort of main outcome, as well as the chronic lung disease or BPD rate for our unit. And then our process measures, we wanted to, we were going to follow the postmenstrual age when they were off of respiratory support. Um, and then our balancing measures to make sure that we weren't having any um, negative effects from our work. We looked at the postmenstrual age when they were um, at discharge. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't just keeping these babies longer, and that's how we were getting them off of oxygen. And then also we wanted to look at the excited when we talked about it. And it also was typical for a lot of other NICUs across the country. So a lot of other NICUs were already doing that oxygen reduction test um, described by um, Dr. Walsh. So we based it off of that published literature um, where there's a stepwise reduction in either the oxygen and then the flow, ultimately getting the baby to room air um, if they met certain criteria ahead of time. And they'd be on room air for a 30-minute trial. And there was specific failure criteria. So if they desatted to less than 80 for 15 seconds, or if they desatted for less than 90 for five minutes, that would be an automatic fail, and they would go back to their oxygen. And after doing this on a few babies, we, decided, we noted that some babies were sort of, um, sort of bouncing back and forth, up and down, and we adjusted it to use the histogram data um, after the trial to look how often, how much time babies were spending below 90 and below 80 um, as another failure criteria for um, our project. 
And with this, we found that the staff, from, and just sort of anecdotally, staff were really excited about this. They felt like it was nice to have a standardized way of doing it. Um, we then sort of dispersed it to so that all the respiratory therapists um, in the unit sort of knew how to do it and could do it. And it would be documented on. So everyone would know when the trial happened, what the results were, and then when the next tr planned trial would happen. And from this, our next PDSA cycle was an effective FIO2 chart, 4%, uh, where room air is 21%. So it really helped staff and family and lots of other people uh, feel more comfortable and have a better understanding of what that baby was actually seeing. So then it led to better buy-in for our project and less concern that we were trying to sort of rush these babies too fast, too quick, too quickly. And then our last PDSA cycle was an oxygen flow chart. So again, trying to reduce the variation in our unit. We developed this flow chart of sort of an ideal um, for a very low birth weight uh, baby and sort of depending on their gestational age and where they're at in their um, course, what ideally we would like them to be getting. So without going into all the details of it, the main um, thoughts were on this first column here, this is when the baby is less than 34 weeks postmenstrual age, so they're still small, they're still young, and if they required respiratory support, the goal was to give them that distending pressure and not try to wean them to something like low flow or high flow um, where that may not be giving them the distending pressure that they needed. Then in the middle column, at once they reach 34 weeks, this is when premature babies start to show signs that they're ready to eat by mouth. Um, and we wanted to use those age-appropriate cues uh, and let the babies eat. So in order to do that, we would switch them. If they were still requiring oxygen or respiratory support, we would switch them to quarter-liter blended. So that way they, uh, we could titrate the oxygen they were, they were getting. They were, weren't at risk of getting too much. And then they would also be able to eat by mouth. And then the last column over here, once the baby reaches 36 weeks uh, postmenstrual age, this and the baby is still requiring oxygen or respiratory support. This is when we would switch them to an eighth of a liter flow uh, because this is what ultimately they would go home on. So it took, out, took away some of the variation in waiting to the last minute to try to switch them over um, and really let us help focus on discharge planning. And this uh, was also uh, um, well accepted in the nursery and um, we posted this at the baby's bedside so that everyone could see. The basic sort of characteristics of the infants um, in 2014, this is our baseline here, and compared to 2015, 2016, uh, there wasn't much difference between the three groups. Um, so the gestational ages were similar, the birth weights were pretty similar. Um, the only thing that was different significantly was the percent of males, and, and actually males between failures. So you want more successes between failures, you want higher numbers. And for our project, we determined that a success was a baby going home off of oxygen, and then a failure was a baby going home with oxygen. And I annotated in here um, some key things, key time points, so the baseline, and then when we did our, formed our team and did our interventions. And we saw that the mean number of successes between failures were at baseline was 1.8, and then during our project, um, and at the end of our project, it increased to 
And our rate, um, from going back to the Vaughn data, um, our rate of going discharge home on oxygen decreased from 34% in 2014, um, down to 18 and 21% in 2015 and 16. And our chronic lung disease um, rate saw some decline from 30% about to 25% um, in 2015, 2016. And then our, for our balancing measures, the weight at discharge. Um, so this is, again, using our, the Vaughn data. So we're in the blue compared to the, the network mean um, in the uh, black here, you can see that we are still above, um, at or above the mean for the baby's weight when they go home, so that was good. And then for their postmenstrual age um, at discharge, we were tracking this um, as we went, and we saw that there was one point above the upper control limit here um, for this XMR chart, and so there was one point when we kept the baby um, longer, significantly longer, but then the rest of the time we were sort of back in the in control here. Um, so we took that as it was. And I'm happy to send it off to people. Um, and just to close, some thank yous to my team um, and my LPMAR uh, mentors, so Alicia Zabelic and Nitu and Matt could not have done this without you and the rest of the race committee and those who significant, who helped me significantly with my... I assume that your postmenstrual age at discharge and or length of stay was consistent with the, the network because one simplistic interpretation could have been that you were so much better at other criteria for discharge and or so confident in the TLC program that you felt more comfortable sending them home on oxygen at an earlier age. but. I'm guessing you're going to say yes, we were consistent in terms of they're all about the same age and they stayed just as long. Yeah, so um, this wasn't what we tracked, but I did look into this. So we were pretty much similar um, in most instances um, with the, the, the length of stay for Vaughn. The problem with the length of stay and why we track the postmenstrual age at discharge is it depends on when they're born. So as you know, as you can imagine, a 34-weeker is going to stay only a few weeks, whereas a baby born at 24 weeks is going to stay much longer. So all those things sort of play into the length of stay. But we tended to be similar to the, the network mean. Right. But there's yeah. no reason to suspect that you had a lower, a lower threshold for sending home on oxygen because of Laura and, and Tyler. <laughs> Not. Um, although Laura and Tyler and Sarah are awesome at what they do, and we cannot do what we do without them, um, I don't think that there was um, a sort of feeling in the unit that we could discharge them earlier because of that. Um, so that I loved the history. Well, good. Okay. Um, it was a little alarming to see how much of that was sort of me being alive and very functional. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, a lot of the quality improvement that we do, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, you have moves in evil, but you've actually seen some results. But um, it's the, the sort of the staying power. So what, because you're going to go off into the world, hopefully not far away at all. And you control the world. But <laughs> do, you have, do you have plans in place for um, ensuring that some of these um, 
uh, different cycles that you've put in place will, will persist. Yeah, I think that that is key in, in what we do and making sure that it continues. So luckily, I think we have a pretty invested group already. So the race committee that still continues to meet, they look at respiratory care practices, um, and that's led by Dr. Singh and Matt. Um, and we continue to sort of check in, although we're not following as closely sort of which babies are getting the rumor trial, and, but we, it is still um, followed. And it's become pretty ingrained in the culture, I would say. Um, maybe I'm biased, but I feel like we talk about it a lot on rounds. We talk about when the, when the trial was. Um, we have that sort of written out so everyone knows. And when we have the plan of when the next one is. So we're trying to keep it going. Um, unfortunately, we are. If they're in the group that gets the special monitor, they can do uh, like you did, which is not actually Instagram, but they follow it over time. So if they're um, less than 96% saturation for uh, more than 5% of the time, mm -hmm. um, that's a failure too. And when they would come in, we would just do it for half an hour in the TLC and uh, see if they, and if they weren't on that monitor. But it just, it's interesting to me that we're using different criteria based on different studies. And, and um, before we were in the line study, we were winging it in the TLC. Too, right, but, right. Um, uh, but we had criteria. Right, just yeah. It's interesting that we should yeah. think about that, that we're, there's this gap between 90 and 96%. Right. And I don't know. And I, I know Tyler probably has thoughts on this, but I know, you know, it's unfortunately it just speaks to the lack of data that we have in this field. You know, there, and we still, to this point, we don't have exact, we don't even know exact what the exact um, oxygen saturation should be at what point. You know, and they're really young, premature. We're really worried about over oxygenation um, for the ROP and BPD. And then as they get older, that gets more lax and they can be higher, but. We just don't know exactly when that is and when that transition is and at what time point the ideal is. So we are based off of the Walsh, which is um, in the unit. and But going home, I don't think prior to the study that you guys are in, uh, that we're in, I don't think that there was much data on how to wean those babies once they're home. Um, so um, there's still lots that we don't know. Uh, Tyler, if you have more yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's a tricky comparison, I agree. Uh, primarily because the monitors we use for um, the RHO study um, have an averaging time of two seconds. Um, these babies tend to have very frequent, very quick desaturations that the two-second averaging time picks up, where our monitors are using, using 12-second averaging time, so that's kind of like blurs all of those quick desaturations. Um, so that's probably the main reason for... Uh, for the difference, and plus, we initially started with the RHO at a kind of a, a looser criteria for, uh, but it got declined on IRB um, at, uh, at Boston Children's Hospital. So then we had to tighten up the oxygenation criteria to get the study done. Um, one thing I'd like to um, suggest: so the changing in the Vaughn uh, going home on oxygen, we're still doing it the same way as an outpatient. So we still have all of that data from. 2014, 15, oh, that's and going good, forward. So you can still have a comparison if you if you like. Because um, and we have a box for at discharge on oxygen and then any oxygen after discharge, mm -hmm. so, which I think is going to be an important uh, balancing factor. Which um, you you really couldn't have done with the data available to you at the time, but you can going forward is looking at um, 
balancing with hospital readmissions, because like we can take oxygen off anyone. The question is, do they do okay without it? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> do, they, do they get readmitted to the hospital? Um, how many times they get readmitted to the hospital, they go back on oxygen after discharge, and what the neurodevelopmental outcome is that two years. Yeah, and that would be great to start following the neurodevelopmental yeah, outcome. On that, that would be perfect also, but that's a yeah. work in progress. <laughs> okay, so just so I understand it, that was great. Can you send me the slides? Oh, sure. So basically, in a nutshell, what, you're, what we're trying to achieve here is that the centers, really all the centers that are doing the studies, they need to communicate with each other as well as using the same criteria because then we'd be able to compare <coughs> results. Because if you're using different standards, um, like 90% versus 96%, it's harder to compare. So if we kind of all, if there was a group, a cohort or a consortium that used the same, um, you know, criteria or standard, mm -hmm. then we'd be able to compare more and that would be hopefully make progress a little faster rather than having all these different standards out there. Just, just a thought. Yep, I, I agree, yeah. And I think a lot of the um, data that I showed, they'll use a, a same um, definition. So the BP rate that I showed um, that was increasing, that's using the definition of 36 weeks, oxygen at 36 weeks. And the Vaughn definition that we use is oxygen at 36 weeks. So in, within um, networks and within studies, they use a similar definition. But, I, but across the country, there are lots of other NICUs that do a variety of different things that we may or may not know about as far as variation in their definition, variation in what their oxygen saturation that they're, they're targeting and when, um, and what oxygen delivery device they're using. So there's lots of variations, so I agree. So then the thing with that would be is then the results that you get, if, it's, if you're not getting a general sample, um, I'm trying to say this correctly, um, you would you'd only be able to get the results if you need to have a bigger sample in order to extrapolate the data and apply it to other areas. Mm -hmm. So if other areas, we all could do the same thing. Or, I mean, I know that mm -hmm. we're, it's hard to everybody do the same thing, but that works for that area. You can't extrapolate the data and apply it to other areas then. So, mm -hmm. yep. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking I'm getting what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. My question is sort of a piggyback to that. So I don't know as much as a lot of people in the room about Vaughn, but I think one, one of the issues that we have as we measure variation is that we are not linking it to improvement, right? So we've gotten reasonably good at measuring things, but the implementation science that comes secondary to that is not always being sort of distributed well or implemented well, basically. And so my first question is, does Vaughn offer support for quality improvement initiatives that do extend larger than sort of single center? And then my second question is, from this project, knowing that we can make some good improvements on your Vaughn data, does the unit have a way of sort of looking systematically from here at that data and deciding how to prioritize quality improvement initiatives going forward so that we're not just working on home oxygen rates, but sort of looking at all that data and trying to make improvements steadily. 
Yes. Um, so I apologize if I did not emphasize enough how much Vaughn um, does um, and support NICUs. There are collaboratives that you can join, which we've been a part of um, multiple times in sort of focusing on one area. So we've been part of the Respiratory Outcomes Collaborative or Reducing Lung Injury. Um, now we're part of the Micropremie Collaborative and trying to improve our outcomes for micropremies. And they offer... Um, both local and sort of national support in tracking your numbers and um, uh, having somebody to sort of work with as far as a, a mentor um, and lots of other resources um, for that. So we've been a part of that. And we continue to be a part of that. And then um, from our in, within our unit, we have a variety of committees that are sort of looking at different outcomes. So the race committee is looking at the respiratory outcomes. We have an infection committee that's looking at our infectious um, outcomes and sort of how we can improve that. And then we have our overall sort of leadership um, committee that's looking at a variety of different things and will uh, sort of determine different projects that are um, you know, important and sort of where we should be focusing on. Um, and I think that we do a really good job in our unit in trying to focus on these improvement projects and talk about them. Staff are aware um, of what's going on. We talk about it at nursing huddle and at our morning rounding huddle. Um, but there's always, I think, it's all, I think improvement, as you know, is always, there's always some challenges to it. So, uh, Michelle, a great talk and uh, provocative stuff. You know, and I think understanding where we are and knowing what we're doing obviously is a big key of making progress. But I would just like to point out that it's important to benchmark against the mean. But, but, and you alluded to this, but the mean for bronchopulmonary dysphoria is still terrible. Yeah. And, yes. Um, so, you know, it's nice to be able to tell your mother that you're doing the same thing as all the other kids, but you're all doing the wrong thing. It's still not so great. So, my real question is, you know, where do you think we're going to go in the future? I mean, what? I mean, we focused a lot on ventilation, we focused a lot on oxygen delivery, and those have borne some fruit, but. You know, where, where do you think the real answers for climate going to be? And don't say preventing prematurity. <laughs> <laughs> that would be ideal. Um, you know, that's a really great question. I think that there's a lot of interesting things, as you know, that are being done in trying to further reduce mechanical ventilation with the surfactant um, without intubation, so using just a small, tiny little catheter that you can put in. But I think... A lot of it has to do with sort of what we're doing in the delivery room, and maybe we can optimize that better because, you know, these premature lungs are, they're premature and they're fragile, and then right away we start doing positive pressure and trying to open them up because they need to be so we can oxygen ventilate. But um, I wonder if there's ways in our um, premature delivery room practices um, that we can be... Uh, just be more gentle, or sort of we can um, do things quicker or in a more premature friendly environment. As you know, in the delivery room, if anyone's been to the delivery room, for these babies, it tends to be loud and bright and, and, and a lot's going on. And, and, you know, we have to use sometimes high pressures to, to do what we need to do. 
That sounded more like a, a, a really good challenge than a question, Steve. <laughs> I would, I would, I'll wrap us up and, and note that even Dr. Ringer appreciates that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound. And it's always an ounce when it comes to us. <laughs>